for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Our Heavenly Father, we want to understand your word. We want to believe it and apply it to our life. And so we ask that your spirit this morning would help me to speak clearly, uh, that your spirit would open our ears to hear, uh, and that we would obey what it is that you are saying to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text begins with the word, therefore, which tells us that Paul is drawing uh, his argument to a conclusion, uh, the result of something. What he's about to say is the result of what was based on what he just previously said. He has described the reality of our Christian life. As those who are born of God, uh, we have the Spirit in us. And that means that we should now live as a result of that in a particular manner. First Peter is written to persecuted Christians, calling them to suffer in God-honoring ways in all areas of life. Back in chapter 2, we saw that uh, Peter called us to submit ourselves to every human institution, whether they be good or bad, for the sake of Christ himself, even if that means suffering. In fact, 1 Peter 2 says, you have been called to suffer as Christ suffered for you. He is our example. Christ suffered, but he did not sin. He he did not abuse. He did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to God who judges rightly. And that's what we're to do. We entrust ourselves to God. But that can be hard, can't it? When we look at the circumstances around us and we wonder, where is God in the midst of this? Why is he not defending me? Because if he was defending me, things would go the way I want. But regardless of what is going around... He is faithful and he is good. That's what we believe, isn't it? And so we need to live by faith and entrust ourselves to him. Two weeks ago, in uh, 1 Peter 3.18, 
we saw that Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. He took our sin upon himself. He suffered for us so that through his suffering, we might be reconciled to God. He received the wrath of God that that you and I deserve. And for those of us who are in Christ, because of his suffering, there is no condemnation for us. He took it on himself. Romans 4.25, Christ died for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Through his suffering, we have victory. And so that brings us to our text this morning. As Peter calls us to a battle of the mind. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, he died and was raised. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. What kind of thinking is that? That whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Have this mind in you. He who has suffered has ceased from sin. In Christ, our attitude and our life should look different. We are the beginning of the new creation. What God has promised to the whole universe, he has begun in us by his spirit. We are different than what we were. And so we should think and act as the new creation. And so we arm our minds with the truth of God's word to believe what God says about us in the world we live in. We walk by faith and not by sight so that we can live out our days in obedience to the one who saved us. How does Paul describe this battle? In Ephesians 6, he says, put on the whole armor of God to withstand the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle simply against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authority, and cosmic powers. But the good news is, Christ has already subjected all of that to himself. Back in chapter 3, verse 22, Christ has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God, meaning he is enthroned in glory with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so we arm ourselves with this knowledge that Christ has already won the victory. 
Peter is simply echoing what he started to say back in chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. How? By setting our hope on the grace of Christ that we experience now as we look forward to the glory that will be revealed in us when Christ returns. It is a battle. As we fight against the devil, the world, and that old selfish nature in us. It's a battle as we seek not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How is our mind renewed by the word of God? As we read the word, as we meditate upon it, the living spirit who dwells in us takes it and applies it to our mind and our hearts. It shapes how we think because it is wisdom to us. Daily Bible reading and prayer, communion with God daily is not some exercise or some hoop that we jump through to make sure God's happy with us today. That's how often we think about it. I better have my devotions today so God's happy. He loves you. His word and his spirit are so that you can commune with him and so that he can reshape you so that you respond to this fallen world because we're still in this world. This world hasn't changed, but we have. It is the creator's interpretation of reality. That's what the Bible is, isn't it? We think, that, we think this is what's real. What's real is what God says, and it's far bigger than this. And it's bigger than your life and your suffering. And we need to place our, our life and our suffering in the context of what God says is reality. The world speaks truth to us as we live in a world filled with lies, half-truths, and self-deception. And in 2 Corinthians 10, we're told that the weapons of our battle are not of the flesh, but of divine power. To bring down every lofty error to destroy arguments and false presumptions against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are to have this mind that was in Christ Jesus who was obedient to God in all of life and even unto death, death on the cross. As the second Adam, Christ was the quintessential man who loved God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul and all of his strength. And he loves us 
And he demonstrated it by dying in our place for sin. Loving God and loving neighbor is the summary of the law, isn't it? And so Christ delighted in the law of God as an expression of God's righteous character. And we have the mind of Christ, which is to permeate all of life as the Holy Spirit shapes our thinking and our heart and our motivation to obey the Father as Christ himself obeyed. So how did Jesus think about suffering? He knew he came to suffer. He knew he came to die in the flesh in obedience to God. Suffering was his calling. It was the reason for his earthly ministry, so he expected it. And he saw its purpose in God's plan. And in Luke 9, as the day of his crucifixion drew near, we're told that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to the place where he would be lied about, spit upon, beaten, and die. And he would not be deterred. When his friend and disciple, Peter, tried to talk some sense into Jesus, what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Jesus came to suffer and die for sin. And in his life and death, our relationship to sin itself has changed. We have ceased from sin. That's a pretty bold statement. We are set free from sin. And because we have been set free, we no longer have to obey sin or live in it. Verse 1, Christ suffered for us so we can think differently about sin. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, God uses suffering uh, to sanctify us in all kinds of ways. One, think about it, suffering can help us become more dependent on God. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And we believe that was some physical ailment or disability. Three times he asked God to deliver him. But what does God say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in your weakness. And so Paul says, 
I will gladly boast in my weakness so that God's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. That's why I delight in suffering. Not because it's fun, not because I enjoy it, but because when I'm going through it, I see how weak I am and my heart turns to God and there is power. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Secondly, suffering moves us to cry out to God, closely related to the first. We always intend to spend time with God in prayer. Or at least more time than we do. But when we're suffering, what do we do? We can't help but pray. Our heart cries out to God. Comfort, unfortunately, often breeds complacency. And so God uses suffering to awaken our desire and to see our need to pray. Suffering and trials are meant to perfect our Christian character. They're the fire that purifies us to help us grow to be all that God would have us to be. James 1, consider it all joy My brothers, when you encounter various trials, suffering, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full work in you that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Everything I said is true. God uses suffering to advance our sanctification. But I don't think that's the point Peter is making here. Verse 1, we have ceased, the one who suffers in the flesh, ceased from sin, is less about our ongoing process of sanctification and becoming more like Christ, but rather it's, It's referring to our current status with sin through union with Christ himself. What is my current relationship with sin as a Christian? Christ suffered in the flesh once for all. And the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, or another way to say that is done with sin. Hear how Paul says the same thing in Romans 6. If we have been united with Christ in a death like his, and we have, then we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection 
like his. For we know that our old self, that old nature that was bound to sin, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. And that we no longer should be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its evil desires. That is the life-altering power of the gospel. We believe a lie when we think that we cannot be any different than what we were before. We are the new creation now and what was old is passed away. Now this doesn't mean that we no longer struggle with sin. That's not what this is saying. We still have that old sinful nature. Peter is writing this letter to what? To Christians. To urge them not to sin. And so the reality is, even in our best moments as Christians, they're often a mix, aren't they? Of righteous and unrighteous motives and responses. But as Christians, even as we struggle with this idea of a mixed response, we want to be different, don't we? We want to be purified. We want to be righteous. We want to obey. We've been set free. And so we can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And when we fall, we have an advocate who prays for us. Christ's decisive suffering in the flesh is our death to the reign of sin over us because we died and have been raised with him. And our baptism back in chapter 3, not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a good conscience points to our union with Christ. We were baptized into Christ into his death and into his resurrection and by the one spirit who ushers us into a new reality, we have power. Having died to sin, we are alive to God. And the rest of our life is not to be lived for the passion of sin, but passion for the will of God. Think back to 1 Peter 1. Just Paul or Peter introducing his letter. You are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by the power of God for a salvation yet to be revealed. And then later in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, you were ransomed. 
from the futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, just as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We formerly lived according to the passions of the flesh, the passion for sin. Now our passion should be to love, obey God. And if we say we love God, then we will demonstrate it by loving his good and perfect will. Demonstrated in obedience. First John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome to us. Are we saved? Are we obeying God? Do we love God? We say we do. But do we do battle? Are we willing to fight the old nature? Or do we love our sin more? Too often people think, well, I raised my hand. I prayed a prayer. Those are fine things. And God can use those. But raising your hand in a service or praying a prayer does not save you. What saves you is faith in Christ. It is a work of the Spirit in you who unites you to Christ. He gives birth to a new nature in you that believes the gospel, that has faith in Christ and loves the will of the Father. The two go together. It's fruit of the new nature. Think what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? There's manifestation of the Spirit. What does Jesus say? I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Good works do not save us. But they are the fruit of the new nature. The evidence of saving faith is a changed Life demonstrated by good works of obedience to the will of the Father. It's not just what we do. There are lots of good people. It's not what we do, but why we do it. Is it motivated by love for God and his glory? My desire is not to freak anyone out but to call us to examine our own life. In every church, there are true believers 
and those who claim the name of Christ. And the Bible calls us to examine our own heart to make sure we are of the household of faith. Do we have the character of Christ, the desire to love Christ, the desire to obey him? Do we love his church and his people? Does my life give it evidence that I have been born of God? Now, I'm not saying we have to be perfect, but are we moving towards God? Do I have this growing desire to love God more and more and obey him more completely? As I was uh, writing this week, uh, I felt like a big fat hypocrite. How dare you? Talk to people that way. Uh, It is not loving not to warn people they're in danger. And God calls us to examine our heart and our life. And the accusations that we face from our own heart. May actually not be from our own heart. But from Satan himself. He can't take your salvation but he can disrupt your joy. He can make you think that you're not any different. That you haven't changed. Or that God is somehow unhappy with you and your progress. But what the Bible calls us to do is to simply keep moving forward. Think of Paul in Philippians 2 talking about the upward call of God. He says, not that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it, the upward call, my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. When those accusations come, look to, as Peter would say in chapter 3, your baptism. Look to your conversion. Look to your Faith in Christ. All the things that that sacrament is supposed to represent. It's a sign of our union with Christ. It's not what I do, but what he did for me. And that the waters of baptism, the blood of Christ, washed away my sin. Verse 3, Peter calls us to a a changed life. You spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. You've wasted enough time. You've wasted enough of your life living like unbelievers. Now, we cannot change the past. But we can choose today to follow Christ.
Joshua 24, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's not a one-time commitment. I think when, when I was a young Christian, you know, that's what I was looking for. You, this, this crisis moment of decision that I would commit and yield my life to Christ and everything would just be different from then on. It's, it's, it's a daily practice. The, the, the Christian life is a life of repentance. All repentance is, is turning from sin and turning to Christ every day. Turn from the flesh and turn to Christ. But as you choose to live this way in obedience to God, you will not be uh, probably the most popular person. Verse 4. Unbelievers are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery as, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The world will speak harshly about you simply because you don't go along. They will ridicule you. They will slander you. It's not easy being different, is it? But Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you, when others persecute you and say evil things against you falsely on my account. Be glad and rejoice. Great is your reward in heaven, for they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's not pleasant to be left out. Sometimes our persecution isn't so much what happens in other parts of the world. It's just not being included, being made fun of. But even that, when we suffer that for the glory of Christ, God is pleased. It's not pleasant, but it is a momentary light affliction producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. We live now in this present world, but we have an eye to the future and the one who will hold us all accountable. Now, much like people today, the pagans in the ancient Near East didn't give much thought to life after death. For them, what was important is now. Am I happy now? Am I enjoying life now? Do I have all I want now? The eternal judgment of God was not in their purview, was not in the scope of their thinking. But even though they weren't thinking about it, eternity is coming. And for this reason, the gospel was preached, it says in verse 6, even to those who are now dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. 
the, the thought of the passage is that since pagans gave no account of life after death, they saw no benefit to the gospel. To them, it's, it's just too restrictive. It cramps my style. And all these Christians who aren't having fun like I am, they're dying anyway, so what's the use? They saw Christians suffering for the faith. Some were persecuted, others were even martyred. So what good is the gospel to them? That's because they thought of only here and now. The fact is, physical death is a result of sin. And unless Christ returns first, you and I will experience this temporal judgment of the, of the curse. But we will not experience the second death. Christians will, will die, as all people do, but in Christ, we live in the spirit as God does. And so we will live with him forever. And so death is tragic even for us. But we do not mourn it or fear it as the unbelieving world does. And if you've ever gone to an unbelieving funeral and a believer's funeral, you know the difference. It's, it's always amazing. The death of a, a Christian, there, there's sadness, there's joy. And to do the death of a believer, to preach the sermon, is a great honor. Even though it's sad. But the funeral of an unbeliever, and I've done lots of them, they are dark and miserable and without hope. The gospel is preached and believed even by those who are now dead. But the promises of the gospel even to those who have died continue. And we will all see the truth of it when Christ returns, our bodies are raised, and we enter into our eternal glory. And so that puts suffering in a different perspective. It's still hard, it's still unpleasant. Physical death is inevitable, but we have been reconciled to God. And through Christ's suffering, our relationship to sin has dramatically changed. We have ceased from sin. We are done with that life, even if we still struggle with it, because the curse and the power of sin is gone, so we can now obey 
God. We live as exiles and sojourners in this world, but our eternal home is with the Lord, and it is beyond all that we can imagine. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to meditate on these truths, not to think lightly about what you have done for us, but that we would regularly give time and energy to meditate upon the truth that we are now different, that in Christ we are totally free. And help us to take steps necessary to live in that freedom. To be mindful that we always live life before you. And that in every moment we would want to please you in obedience. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.